Thomas Monroe writes, already, get ready to play the blame game. You're driving 120 kilometers in a 45 kilometer per hour zone. You lose control, flip your car on a sharp curve, and critically injure yourself. Who's at fault? No, not you, the Department of Transportation, for not making the degree of banking on that curve great enough to keep you on the road at 120 kilometers. Or you're going 75 kilometers in a 55 kilometer per hour zone, and you're pulled over, given a ticket that leads to having your driver's license suspended. Who is to blame? No, not you. The police officer should have been a little bit more sympathetic to your situation. You're wearing a shirt that needs to be ironed. Instead of taking it off, you try to iron the shirt with it on. And guess what? That's right. You get burned. Shame on you, right? No. It's the company who made the iron that deserves blame. Because they should have warned you that ironing clothes on while you have them on your body is dangerous. You pull through a McDonald's for some hot, yes, hot coffee. While trying to drive your car, eat your Egg McMuffin, you spill your hot, yes, hot coffee all over yourself. Are you at fault for being so careless and trying to drive while you eat? No, of course not. It's McDonald's fault for making that coffee so hot. You decide that you need to fix an electrical component in your TV without unplugging it. And so you begin your work. Uh-oh. You guessed it. You get electrocuted. Dumb you, right? No. Samsung should have told you that you were at risk for electrical shocks. In a true story, a man decided to try a stunt that required him to swallow razor blades. He ended up in the hospital for emergency care and a huge bill. He took responsibility, right? Guess again. He ended up suing the hospital for subjecting him to harmful radiation during x-rays. My friends, we live in a society where responsibility is only acceptable for what goes right. But when things go wrong, then it is someone else's fault. Our culture likes to blame everyone else, but never looks at themselves if they are the issue or they've contributed to the problem at hand. Because of an entitlement mentality, insecurities, no desire for accountability, disregard for submission to authority, selfishness, and other character issues, our perspective is that it is rarely our fault and most always someone else's fault. Remember Jesus' own words regarding this matter in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to 5. Let me read that. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? For how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the reason we need to stop playing the blaming game is so that we can learn to take personal responsibilities for our actions and be accountable to the many important decisions and life choices we make. As we continue our sermon series, When Giants Walk the Earth, we want to take a look at Genesis chapter 3 and learn about mankind's fall into sin because of Adam and Eve's actions. In our study, we want to learn some biblical principles to help us stop playing the blame game and instead live a life of accountability. Because unfortunately, people surprisingly even place the blame of man's fall on God. They blame God for putting that forbidden fruit tree in the Garden of Eden in the first place. Or they question why God didn't just kill Satan or the snake before the temptation. 
or why God didn't just appear and forcibly stop Eve before she took that first bite from the fruit. Little focus is placed on the fact that Adam and Eve knowingly disobeyed. It is as simple as that. But let's explore these issues as we exposit Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3 as we take a look at verses 1 to 24, as we learn principles to help us take accountability of our lives and stop playing the blame game. I read now Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here in verse 1 we're told that Satan, in the form of a talking snake, tempted Eve first and questioned the explicit command and instruction of God. Now we're not told why Eve was not surprised by a talking snake, because animals did not talk to humans even before the fall. Whatever the case, between the conclusion of chapter 2 and the end of day 7 and the beginning of chapter 3, Lucifer rebelled. He rebelled against God because of pride, perhaps jealous because he saw God's amazing work of creation and wanted to be like him. Lucifer's fall is recounted in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Even though God is not the author of sin, sin came into the world between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. Lucifer, that great high-ranking cherubim angel, became Satan, and many angels joined in that rebellion and became fallen angels or demons. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between the end of Genesis chapter 2 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, and frankly, it doesn't matter. Notice in verse 1 that Satan posed the question in such a way to create doubt in the mind of Eve and to test her knowledge. He asked Eve, did God really say you could not eat any of the fruit trees? Satan was creating doubt in her mind. Perhaps God really didn't say what he said. Perhaps God only intended for the rule to apply to Adam and for it not to apply to Eve. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, the prohibition not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil came to Adam only before Eve was created. But surely Adam would have told Eve after she was created about this prohibition. But then again, maybe it only applied to him and not Eve. That's what Satan perhaps wanted Eve to think. Satan subtly crafted his question in such a way to also test her knowledge of the prohibition. Because he said, did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit trees? Of course, the answer is no. They could eat of all of the fruit trees in the garden except one. But Satan didn't offer up the exception to test Eve's knowledge. Look how Eve responded and answered in verses 2 to 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Seemingly, Eve answered the question well. Notice that Eve knew exactly what the command of God was. They could eat of every fruit tree except fruit that came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, because if they did so, they would die. She knew the warning. She knew the prohibition. She knew that the prohibition applied to her as well as to Adam, and she knew the deadly consequences. By the way, the fruit is not identified. It is not an apple. 
Eve unfortunately added something which God did not say, which was that they were not to touch the fruit. Perhaps Adam added this phrase when he told Eve the warning, or both of them added this phrase so that they wouldn't be tempted to eat of this fruit by not even going near as another level of protection. Now, you may say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? No, my friends, we should never add to God's Word. And I wonder if this addition to God's command actually made Eve more susceptible or more easily fall into temptation. You see, God's warning was simply not to eat of the fruit. He didn't say you should stay away from the tree. He didn't say you can't touch it. In fact, the tree was in the center of the garden. He just simply said you cannot eat from it. Perhaps by allowing Adam and Eve to touch it, it took the luster off from even wanting to have it. I hope you see my point. For example, in the Bible, there are prohibitions about keeping holy, fleeing from sexual sins, and enjoying sexual intimacy only in the bounds of a marriage relationship. But the Bible doesn't tell us to stay away from people of the opposite gender. It doesn't say we have to sit segregated from each other. We are to treat each other with respect and have self-control. But it doesn't tell us to avoid each other. Instead of viewing the opposite gender as someone to be avoided or as a possible cause to my temptations, the responsibility is on me to keep holy, regardless of my situation, with no one else to blame. Anyway, Eve responded well, and she knew she could not eat of the fruit. She could enjoy everything else in the garden God had created for her, just not that fruit tree. The question is often posed to me, why did God even put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Maybe it is God's fault for putting that tree there, where it would serve as a temptation and eventually cause Adam and Eve to fall. Or perhaps it was man's fault for not simply obeying God's command. Let's see what the Bible says. Go back with me one chapter, and let's review Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, which we studied last week. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Bible tells us God put Adam and Eve in a beautiful utopic land, they could enjoy all of the fruit trees that were in the garden except one, the fruits that came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as we mentioned before, the stress should be on the blessings and all the blessings that God had given them. Many have asked, why did God put a tree in the Garden of Eden where they could possibly be tempted? And the answer is, I don't know. It's a mystery to me because the Bible simply doesn't tell us. You know, my friends, those are some of the best theological answers that you can give. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Because if the Bible doesn't give us a reason why, then we simply don't know. The reason for why God put that tree in the garden is known only to Him. But in reality, we don't need to play the what-if game. God did it, and it is within His right to do so without us second-guessing His actions, because He is sovereign He's the creator. He can do as He pleases, and He's also fair in all that He does. Let me repeat that last phrase. God is fair in all that He does. Why do I emphasize this point? Because when God put that tree in the Garden of Eden, He did so with a warning to mankind. 
It would not be fair to Adam and Eve and to all mankind if God put that tree in the garden without a warning, and we, through Adam, accidentally fell into sin because Adam and Eve ate of that fruit not knowing they weren't supposed to. But God made the prohibition and warning abundantly clear. In fact, Adam and Eve knew this warning well, so much so that Eve was able to answer Satan's question with confidence, even though he tried to phrase it as something doubtful. And so here's our first biblical principle, number one. God is never at fault when we sin because His warnings are clear, simple, and precise. God is never at fault when we sin because His warnings are clear, simple, and precise. My friends, did you ever notice that in the Bible, God's commands are often short and sweet? Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. His warnings don't come with long exception clauses, nor do they come with lots of justification for why you need to heed the warning. It isn't, do not lie, except if you're trying to get a discount on something, or you can lie if it's to protect your integrity or reputation, which then would be simply ironic, or you can lie if it doesn't seemingly affect others. The command is simply, do not lie. Or the Bible doesn't say, don't commit adultery, because then you may lose your entire family, your reputation, and possibly get STDs. It puts your life at risk. Or it's okay if your spouse wasn't nice to you that you can commit adultery, or the other person is more attractive and treats you better. The biblical admonition is simply do not commit adultery. And we take it as such because we know it comes from a loving God who wants the best for us. The prohibition here in Genesis was, do not eat of the fruit or you will die. Pretty clear, simple, and precise. Look with me now at verses 4 and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here Satan blatantly lied to Eve and told her that she would not die. We have a contradiction between what God said and what Satan said. And when you have a contradiction between what you hear and what the Bible says, what do you do? It would have been so easy to fact check. It wouldn't have taken long for her to stop that conversation and ask Adam what God really said. And Adam apparently was close by. Or even ask God himself whether what Satan was saying was true or not. But Eve didn't even bother to counter his lie and push back against it as what Jesus had done when He was being tempted by Satan, as the gospel recounts. She simply lets it go. Satan also appealed to her ego. He told her, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. You see, Satan wanted to be like God, and pride caused his downfall. And now Satan was appealing to the same thing in Eve. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to know good and evil? How many of us posed with the same question, would be able to answer, no, I'm okay with not knowing because God, in His love, wisdom, and sovereignty, thinks that it is best that I do not know. I'm at peace and content with it. However, I think most of us would want to know more because the pride of our heart says, it is better for me to know. We want to be like God, to know all things, to be in control, to do whatever I think is right. You may say, is it asking too much to want to know the difference between good and evil? 
But is it really the case? Was that really the issue? Let me ask you a question. Did Adam and Eve already know the difference between good and evil at this point? Remember, they haven't eaten the fruit yet. If you answer no, then it is God's fault that they fell into sin because God created Adam and Eve as being naive, not being able to differentiate between what is right and wrong. But the answer is yes. They knew the difference between right and wrong already. They knew that it was wrong to eat of this fruit in willful disobedience to God as evidenced by Eve's answer. And so there was really nothing to gain by eating this fruit. There wasn't more knowledge to be gained by eating the fruit from this forbidden tree, only everything to lose. So why call this tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I believe the tree is so named because it is a test by which Adam and Eve would choose to follow God in goodness or disobey God in evil. It was a test if they trusted God enough to obey Him, knowing that not eating the fruit was what was best for them, because the eating of the fruit would then open their eyes and they would see and understand the horrors of sin and evil which the loving God had at that point shielded them from. They already knew right and wrong. They just didn't know the horrors of sin. In that sense, their eyes would be open not to their satisfaction, but to sin's horrors. So it is with all sins. The temptation and the anticipation to sin may be appealing and a strong draw, but right after we sin, it is often regret that sets in, always sorrow, a wishing that we had not done it because nothing really had been gained or satisfied. I've often been asked why God didn't just kill the snake destroy Satan, or appear to Eve and warn her not to eat the fruit before she took the bite? Again, the answer is, I don't know. I wish God did, but this isn't God's fault. Eve knew the prohibition. This was her decision, and whatever her decision, she was responsible for it. My friends, listen carefully. Just because God doesn't swoop in every time we're about to sin to rescue us from sinning doesn't mean He is at fault that we sin. Let that truth sink into your mind. Don't blame God for your choices and decisions. My friends, just because you know something to be true or believe something that if you do it or don't do it is for your benefit doesn't mean much unless it is accompanied by personal actions and personal convictions. I remember receiving a note from a former high school student of mine a few years back, out of the blue, angry at God that she was now pregnant because she had premarital sex with her boyfriend just one time. Why did God allow it to happen when they took all precautions? In fact, she was especially angry that others she knew, who slept around with multiple partners multiple times, had not gotten pregnant. Why only to her? Why would God allow her to experience this? How would you answer her? Is it fair to her? Was God fair? Whose fault is it? You see, we often forget that we are responsible for our own personal decisions, regardless of what other people do or how God deals with them. God doesn't rescue us each time we're about to sin because He's already given us the warnings of what we are to avoid. If we don't heed those warnings and do what we've been explicitly told not to do, it doesn't matter one time or multiple times, then God is not to blame. And this is our second biblical principle I want us to learn, biblical principle number two. 
Believing something to be true or knowing a warning is useless unless it is lived out in action. Believing something to be true or knowing a warning is useless unless it is lived out in action. A lot of us have the knowledge of God's truth and His warnings for how to live a great life just like Eve had, but we don't live it out in action as we should, and therefore that knowledge is honestly useless. It doesn't matter how many times you read the Bible through. It doesn't matter how many verses you can memorize. It doesn't matter how many Bible knowledge trivia you can answer. It is useless if you don't live out the truths of the Scripture. It is unfortunate that Eve and then Adam didn't live out in action what they believed, which was the warning from God that if they ate of the fruit from the forbidden tree, they would experience severe consequences. Look at verses 6 to 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Eve knew the truth of the warning of God, but she still ate of the fruit. Why? Because the fruit looked good, and she desired what she thought she didn't have, which was more wisdom. And Adam also ate of the fruit, presumably for the same reasons. Some have said that perhaps Adam didn't know the fruit that he was eating, and so it's not his fault. But the Bible seems to indicate that he knew and was culpable for his own actions. Perhaps the fruit had a unique shape or had a unique look. Notice that after eating the fruit, they didn't get anything they thought they would get. Even though the fruit looked good to eat, there was no mention that the fruit was tasty or juicy or delicious because it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. They were not made any wiser, but now notice they were exposed and realized the ugliness and horror of sin and immediately knew that what they did was wrong and regretted it. They were guilty, so they hid from God. For once they had no shame in their nakedness and fellowship with God freely, now they hid from God. They had to, quote-unquote, literally cover up. They lost so much for a momentary pleasure and there is no one to blame except themselves. Warnings are useless unless they are followed. Knowing biblical truth is useless unless it is lived out in action. My friends, learn this principle well through the mistake of Adam and Eve. Look with me now at verses 9 to 11. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? God knew everything that had happened, but gave Adam and Eve an opportunity to confess. God asked Adam where he was, and Adam's reply was, I'm hiding because I'm naked. Remember at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, Nakedness was not something to be ashamed of because sin had not entered mankind. 
But now the very same condition was something to hide and be ashamed of because mankind's eyes were now open to the horrors and the ugliness of sin. God directly asked Adam, did you disobey what I specifically commanded you not to do? Did you do it? Look at Adam's response in verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Incredibly, Adam blames both God and Eve. God, you gave Eve to be with me, and then blames Eve. She was the one who gave the fruit for the forbidden tree. Remember, Adam knew the prohibition as well. In fact, he got the warning directly from God, which he then told Eve about. I believe Adam knew he was culpable, but as is our natural response and tendency when we get caught, we blame someone else or we blame a circumstance. Instead of taking responsibility, Adam blames others for his actions. Look at verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman answered and said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame game continues. Now the woman passed the blame onto the serpent, even though it has been well established that she knew the prohibition as well. With all of this passing of the blame, whose fault was it? The biblical text is very clear. It was Adam and Eve's fault. They and they alone are responsible for bringing sin upon themselves and into the world. God is not to blame. He is not the author nor enabler of sin. God has no fault in this at all. God doesn't have to come to the rescue all the time when from the very beginning He gave a very stern and clear warning. It's like if your parents warn you over and over again, that you should not touch the hot oven or else you will get burned. But one day you say, I really don't believe my loving parents. I want to feel how hot the oven is. I'm so attracted to the red glow of the hot burner. And when you touch it, you burn yourself. Who is to blame? If you blame your parents for even having an oven in the kitchen in the first place so that you could possibly get burned, everyone will laugh at you. In fact, they will say, you are so unwise and foolish to do what you did. You would get no sympathy from anyone. In the same way, Adam and Eve can't blame God for having that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to test mankind's obedience. Nor can they blame the serpent for tempting them or even blame each other. Each one of them is personally responsible for their own actions. They can only blame themselves. Ray Pritchard writes in the article, The Blame Game, Pete Hamill is a good word for it. He calls it victimism. It's what happens when you blame other people for your problems. It's a way of explaining why life hasn't worked out the way you would like. You've been treated unfairly. You've ended up on the short end of the stick. You've been dealt a lousy hand of cards. You're a victim. And that's how you get through life, by blaming other people for the bad things that happen to you. If you're late turning in a report at work, that's easy. You just say, I would have turned it in earlier, but Frank was late getting the statistics to me. If you lose your job, it's because the boss was unreasonable. He didn't understand you. He had it in for you. He hated you from the moment you walked into the office. If you didn't keep a promise, it's because you were too busy doing other things. If you failed to do your homework, it's because your roommate borrowed your textbook and wouldn't give it back. If you lost your temper, it's because they provoked you. If a relationship ended, it couldn't have been your fault. Of course not. 
you're a nice person. The other person was a creep. That's all there is to it. Sound familiar? It ought to. Most of us know it all too well about being a victim. Years ago, we learned the victim's battle cry, it's not my fault. We're not always sure whose fault it is, but we know it's not our fault. Couldn't be impossible, unthinkable. But if it's not us, it must be somebody else. Our parents, possibly. It's popular to blame them nowadays for every kind of psychological illness. If it's not our parents, then it's probably our brothers or sisters. They never treated us right. We were always overlooked. But if not our parents, the world is still full of candidates to blame. It could be our grandparents who messed us up. Or maybe it was the friends we ran around with in high school. Maybe we ran with the wrong crowd and they corrupted us. Or maybe we ran with the good crowd and we ended up too good for our own good. Of course, you can always blame your husband or your wife. After all, he's probably just a melonhead. Or you can blame your wife. She's far from perfect. Or maybe it's the people where you work. Yeah, that's a ticket. They're nothing but a bunch of lying, no-good backstabbers. And on it goes. We are the innocent victims. Just ask us. My friends, each of us is responsible for our own actions and decisions. There is no one else to blame. There is no one else to blame. I keep repeating this phrase because it is important for us to internalize and accept. It is biblical truth. In fact, this is where we get biblical truth number three. There is no one to blame when we sin, as each of us are responsible for our own decisions and actions. There is no one to blame when we sin, as each of us are responsible for our own decisions and actions. In this entitled generation that likes to put the blame on everyone else except me, because of course I can do nothing wrong, this principle is especially important for us to understand and accept it's time our generation owns up to what we do and take responsibility for our actions and decisions. Being responsible will cause us to be more aware of the implications of our actions, to be more accountable to the Lord for our actions in word and deed, and that's important. But you may say, I didn't know or I don't know the warnings of God for us. Then it is your responsibility to read the Bible to know what it is. Even the secular world knows this to be true. In the legal world, there is the phrase, ignorance of the law is no excuse, meaning just because you didn't know something is unlawful doesn't mean you are allowed to do it. Just because you don't know isn't an excuse. Everyone has to own up to be responsible for their actions. Remember, God didn't create men and women as robots pre-programmed to worship God through their actions. God created mankind to choose and to think independently. He created us to voluntarily and volitionally worship Him and glorify Him with our lives in obedience. He created us to be accountable to Him as an act of worship. He created us to be accountable to Him as an act of worship, and that requires personal responsibility. Now that Adam and Eve have sinned, and it is their fault, how does it work out that every human after them is born with a sin nature, that they have original sin? Let me briefly answer this valid theological question before we move on. First of all, we define original sin as the doctrine where man is born with sin because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Thus, there is total depravity in mankind, which is his inability to save himself apart from the work of God. 
thus all are sinners, as Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us. The Bible clearly teaches about original sin. And David writes in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was born in sin and sinful from the time my mother conceived me, David writes. But how is it that we get original sin from Adam? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So it was Adam's sin at the Garden of Eden that passed this sin nature to all people because his sinful traits was passed on to all people. Just like the fact that people today have two eyes, two legs, two arms, one nose, those traits were passed down. So also Adam's sin nature. Adam represented mankind and his decision had ramifications. While the inheriting of the sin nature from Adam may be to some unfair, that one man can cause everyone else's sin, it is this unfairness that allows another one man, Jesus Christ, to die for those sins and thus cause everyone else to be saved. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinner. Also by one man's, Jesus Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. So, original sin came because of Adam. But salvation is available for all people because of one man, Jesus Christ. Look at me now at verses 14 and 24. As God punished the serpent, man and woman, and drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden... And yet, as we will see, in the midst of His punishment and discipline, God still loved them and showed them grace. I read now verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Bible tells us the snake was cursed to crawl or slither on the ground, meaning presumably snakes prior to the fall had legs and didn't crawl on the ground. Snakes would also eat dust, probably meaning it would be defeated. As in other Bible verses, eating dust is synonymous with defeat, perhaps indicating that Satan would be ultimately defeated. But it's also interesting that in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25, Snakes are described in the future millennial kingdom as eating dust. Perhaps it will be then that this curse is fulfilled if taken literally. While all animals were affected by the fall as sin entered the world, the snake would be the most despised and despicable for its part in the fall. Verse 15 talks about a hostility between the snake and the woman and animosity between their offspring. It is most likely talking about the conflict between mankind and animal as part of the curse. But others see a hint of the gospel hope here, a first reference to the good news message, a so-called proto-evangelium foreshadowing a day when the seed of woman, Jesus Christ, would ultimately crush or deal a death blow to the head in reference to Jesus' defeat of Satan 
at the cross. I read now verses 16 to 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The Bible tells us for Eve the punishment was increased pain in childbirth and a struggle for headship in the family, where instead there was mutual love and understanding of the complementary roles of each gender. Now with sin, that spousal relationship would be very difficult. For Adam, work would be very hard. Instead of the enjoyable work in the Garden of Eden, the work he would have to do to survive would be strenuous and backbreaking, as the ground is now cursed, as well now filled with thorns and thistles growing where none had been before. And we see at the end of verse 19, both Adam and Eve would not live forever. They would work until the day they died, and then their physical bodies would return back to the dust of the ground. In fact, when they ate of the fruit, they began at that moment to die physically. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God and see the difference between good and evil, and they now saw and will experience the horrors of sin and evil. Was all of this worth losing the great life they'd had just before they bit into that fruit? Of course not. But they experienced the consequences in spite of the warnings that God had given them. And one last severe consequence and punishment for their actions. Look at me at verses 20 to 24. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Bible tells us Adam and Eve were driven out of paradise. They were driven out of the garden of Eden, never allowed to return with a cherubim angel standing guard so that they would no longer have access to the tree of life and live forever. It seems that this punishment was very harsh for just a mistake. Couldn't a loving God be more understanding and forgiving? We often think as we read this. Imagine their first mistake, just one mistake and such deadly consequences. But my friends, this sort of thinking comes about because we don't want to own up to our own actions and decisions. We see ourselves in Adam and Eve. We feel sorry for them because we've made those same mistakes and then we regretted it. But a warning has been given. The consequences and punishments have been dealt out, and it's not up for us to decide because we have been warned and have been told there would be consequences. The Bible tells us that He told Adam and Eve that the consequence would be death, and they started to physically die the moment 
they ate of that fruit. And so being driven out of the Garden of Eden without access to the tree of life should not be a surprise to them. The Bible is clear. Just one sin in our lives makes us deserving of hell. It may seem unfair to you, but that's how it is. It's not about comparing how good you are versus how bad someone else is, whether you receive eternal life or not. It is comparing how you measure up to God's standard of holiness as the Creator God. He has the right to determine who goes to heaven. If you don't obey God's Word, then the consequences and punishment are up to Him to decide. And this incident is a vivid reminder that temporary sin is never worth the eternal consequences. Let me repeat that. Sin is never worth the consequences, and all sins have consequence. If you don't want to live with regret, don't sin. If you don't want to live with regret, don't sin. But in spite of their sins, God's love for Adam and Eve and His grace upon mankind is clearly evident. God still provided clothing for them to survive in the now fallen world, where before they had fashioned simple fig leaf covering, which would not have lasted. God gave them tunics of skin, which would last in the harsh conditions they would be entering. He would take care of them even though they disobeyed His explicit commands. God didn't let mankind permanently live in the horrors of sin, but allowed for temporary death and provided for the hope of eternal life in paradise with resurrected bodies for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. God would sacrifice His own Son just to save mankind from sin. It's all because of His love and grace. We certainly did not deserve it. And so we draw our fourth principle, biblical principle number four. Sin always has consequences, some long-lasting, but God's grace and love are available when we ask for forgiveness. Sin always has consequences, some long-lasting, but God's grace and love are available when we ask for forgiveness. So the next time you blame God for how your life turned out because of your foolish decisions and disobedience, remember that amidst your deserved punishment and consequences, God's love and grace is available for you and me. Susan Jacoby writes about people who profoundly believe they're always losers in the game of life. She calls them, quote-unquote, injustice collectors. Here are several signs. They endlessly repeat how others have mistreated them. They view the world as hostile and unfair to them. They are, quote-unquote, beachcombers of misery who see each grievance as a treasure to add to their collection. They live by the childish notion that life should always be fair to them. They have a competitive view of life in which others are always winning at their expense. They have difficulty maintaining close friendships. They are very hard people to love because they eventually turn on even their close friends. They destroy their closest relationships because they have difficulty trusting other people. My friends, this is what happens when you play the blame game instead of taking personal responsibility and accountability. May the principles we have learned today help us to live lives of personal responsibility and accountability when we remember that, number one, God is never at fault when we sin because His warnings are clear, simple, and precise. 
Number two, believing something to be true or knowing a warning is useless unless it is lived out in action. Number three, there's no one to blame when we sin as each of us are responsible for our own decisions and actions. Number four, sin always has consequences, some long-lasting, but God's grace and love are available when we ask for forgiveness. My friends, stop playing the blame game and take personal responsibilities and accountability for your own actions so that you can live the great life as God intended and glorify Him with your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these lessons from Scripture. It is a reminder even for me. Father, help us to stop playing the blame game and to own up to what we do. Help us to be accountable to You and be responsible for our words and action. Father, I pray that in this entitlement generation, help us to realize that we can do wrong. We are sinners, yet we are saved by grace. And help us to live under Your love and grace, asking You for forgiveness when we do wrong and asking others for forgiveness when we do wrong. Help us, Lord, to look ourselves in the mirror and take out the planks in our own eyes before we would even think about looking at the specks in others. Father, we want to be men and women of integrity. We want to be men and women who look at ourselves as sinners saved by grace to enjoy the great life you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.